Church, Andover Campus, in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. ...on being perfect. And it had been really helpful if there had been a few flat notes or a couple like, oh, that's bad. But that was great. Uh, so that makes my case even harder for why we should be perfect. Who grew up with high expectations in your family? A decent number of us grew up with uh, uh, how we were supposed to be and who we were supposed to be. Uh, I got it from three different sides in my family. Uh, my older sister, Allison, uh, excelled at everything or she didn't do it. Um, she was the best ballerina in the ballet company. She was the best piano player in the studio. Uh, she was the salutatorian of her graduating class, but there's a conspiracy theory that uh, Adrienne was valedictorian because her mother was the senior English teacher and she was the only one who got an A. So Allison will put a big asterisk on why she was actually the best even at school. Uh, she would not do it if she couldn't be the best. Uh, my mother, her, her way of framing expectations and being the best was in terms of intellectual capacity. Uh, Mom was an English teacher for 30 years. Uh, she read literally a book or two a day when she was in, out of school in the summer. Uh, you know, she's the one I told you that made me like read To Kill a Mockingbird in fourth grade before I could watch the movie. We were uh, uh, pushed to intellectual pursuits. Uh, you know, if you could take an honors class, why would you take a standard one, right? Uh, I think she's a little disappointed that I went to school in Farmville where they didn't have a bunch of AP courses uh, because you weren't pushed as far. My, my father's way of framing uh, expectations was in terms of our piety. Uh, he had grown up Southern Baptist and had kind of worked his way through, and you had to be holy. And that meant not sinning and doing lots of good Christian things. Uh, if you did anything wrong, it was a problem. And if you didn't do enough good things, especially Christian-y good things, like read your Bible a lot and pray a lot, uh, you weren't meeting those expectations. I kind of failed at all three of those expectations. Uh, my philosophy was, as long as it's fun, let's do it, but once it's not fun, let's stop. Um, it served me well through T-ball. Uh, <laughs> I was great at batting, but I was always about two feet taller than my friends, and I was not a svelte little boy. I wasn't running and catching a ball uh, in a way that was going to lead me to the, the pros. Frankly, I was scared it was going to hit me in the nose. So once, once you couldn't just be a batter and you had to actually field, my days of baseball glory were over. Uh, piano. I took piano for two whole lessons. Uh, turns out you have to practice. You can't just show up and be good at it. Um, school, I didn't have to work too hard, and I was in the top 10% in my class. But I didn't want to work very hard. So things like freshman English, when Miss Moy told our class that a major part of our grade was to memorize 30 lines from R Romeo and Juliet, I knew what I was going to do, which is not do it. My whole class got up and recited their 30 lines beautiful, as beautifully as a freshman English student can 
can do this. I got up and said, Romeo, Romeo, where far out thou, Romeo, and sat down. I got a zero on the project, got a call to my mother, a C for the entire year of freshman English in high school, and it haunted me for years to come. In terms of piety, I love church. It was fun. Bible reading wasn't really fun. It seemed kind of boring. Uh, we had King James and RSVs in the house. Uh, those weren't very uh, sensible to me. They sounded like different kinds of English. When I prayed, uh, frankly, I tended to fall asleep and think, like, what, what are we doing here? So across the board, uh, I didn't really meet the expectations of my family. This all culminated when I went to college. Uh, I went to NC State University for a grand total of six weeks. I got there having gone to a school with 157 in my graduating class. I had 600 in my calculus class at NC State, 900 in my psychology class, and had a grand time hanging out with friends. I had a zero average in most of my classes when I dropped out after six weeks. Uh, needless to say, that kind of disappointed everybody's expectations for Chad. My sister is the one who had been in the honors college uh, in college. Mom and dad had uh, met over their master's degrees, and I had uh, dropped out after six weeks. Uh, the thing that uh, saved my identity and saved who I was was my church after that. It took a couple years. There were problems. There were some hiccups getting back in. But once I got plugged back in, I found my place. I led worship with the worship team, and I volunteered in our youth group. Uh, it was a place of healing, a place where uh, I could be uh, not just having fun, but could be uh, who I was meant to be. Eventually, I began to discern a call into, into further ministry in this church and uh, sat down with one of the pastors to kind of talk about what ordination looked like. Uh, if you're a Methodist uh, pursuing ordination, it's somewhere between a four and 12-year process. Uh, there are at least four distinct committees who have to approve you. It makes tenure for a college professor look easy. Uh, this, this is a big deal. Step upon step, you have to go through multiple layers of psychological evaluation. You have to have your finances evaluated. And then it culminates, if you choose to pursue ordination, in answering Wesley's historic questions. Most of these questions you think would, would be easy answers, right? Uh, as a pastor, will you commit to visit home to home, to visit with the people? I've asked you to come to me, but I'm visiting with you. Uh, will you commit to preaching the word of God as received? Yes, we'll do that. Uh, will you visit the sick and the widow? Yes, we'll do that. Uh, there's one that everybody likes to laugh about because we have to have master's degrees. It's, uh, are you in debt so as to embarrass yourself in the ministry? And everybody's like, ha ha, you made us get master's degrees. Uh, but then the last two questions, do you believe you're moving on to perfection? And do you expect to be made perfect in this life? Kind of takes your breath out of, out of you when, he, when you hear those questions, doesn't it, Tom? You have to answer yes to this. To be ordained in the United Methodist Church, you have to answer yes. I saw these questions early in my journey into ministry, and I thought, this is like one of those trick questions, right? They, they just say it because Wesley asked it. And so I went to my pastor, and she began to explain uh, what was meant by perfection. Because to me, perfection meant uh, piety like my father, uh, excelling like my sister. It meant uh, education like my mother would approve of. It meant uh, like the best house, the best furniture, the best things, being the best at a career. That's what perfection meant to me. She began to explain that uh, it's actually something totally different, that in, in our tradition, uh, it's being made perfect in love. 
She said, we talk about it all the time in our sermons. It's holiness and sanctification. I am convinced not a pastor in my life had ever said the word sanctification out loud. We don't always listen to our pastors when they're preaching, do we? Um, Sanctification was new to me, that we could be made perfect in love. She explained that the thought is that ultimately you will stop sinning on purpose. Your heart will no longer desire those things that we call sinful. That ultimately will be transformed in a way that we love God perfectly and we love others perfectly. And we expect pastors who are going up for ordination to say, yes, I believe I will be made perfect and I believe it will happen in this life. That was still a lot for me to hold on to and think uh, uh, is entirely possible. So I kind of set it on the, we'll come back to that kind of pile of questions. I came to First Church, and this is something that Teddy Ray preached from day one at Offerings, is that it's not enough to be saved. It's, it's really the starting point is salvation. That's how we get this distorted view of Christianity that's all about avoiding hell and going to heaven, that really that we have a gift to the world, and it's about holiness, about sanctification, about being made perfect. He preached this sermon every year, every Sunday, the entire time I was at Offerings, and I finally began to get it because God started working in me understand what he was talking about. I had to let go of my parents and my sisters and my friends' definition of perfect and to embrace what God was talking about. Uh, This sermon that Jesus is preaching that we started last week with Pastor Brian uh, is a sermon about perfection. It's a sermon about being made holy, about being sanctified. Uh, Jesus has a couple different types of sermons. Early in Matthew, we see his first type. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your heart and change your lives. This is the evangelistic sermon, right? This is the I need to make a decision kind of sermon. I need to change something. He does a bunch of miracles, goes out. People hear this message and they repent. And they change and they start following him. When we get to Matthew 5, it says the crowds are following along with Jesus. He goes up the mountain and begins to preach to them. This is not an evangelistic sermon to Joe Galilean. This is a family sermon to people who had already been captivated and compelled by the living God. They don't need to hear repent or believe in Jesus. They need to hear what it means to be people who live in the kingdom Uh, Last week, Brian started with a sermon on the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Jesus didn't say, hey, you become merciful. You become a peacemaker. You do these things. He preached to a people who heard themselves in these Beatitudes. He preached a family sermon. And then this week, the sermon continues. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and be trampled under people's feet. He doesn't say, hey, you need to become the salt of the earth, does he? He says, you are the salt of the earth. You don't have to do anything to be made the salt of the earth. You have simply been captivated and compelled by the living God, and you are salt. You bring things flavor. You bring about goodness. The only worry is don't lose your saltiness. Now, uh, I keep a thing of kosher salt on my table, right? Uh, we're fancy. We watch Food Network in our house, so you have to have a little, little jar where you flick the, the kosher salt out. It doesn't lose its saltiness, does it? 
You can leave that Morton's up on the counter for two years, and it's going to be salty in two years. But first century Palestinian salt is not Morton's. It's maybe half salt if you're lucky. They've harvested the sea salt. It's got other stuff on it, sand on it. You're lucky if it stays salting. And so Jesus says, you are the salt. Stay salty. You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand, and it shines who are those in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. He doesn't say, become a light. Do these ten things and you will be a light to the world. He says, you are the light. And what are you going to do with it? You're not going to hide it. You're going to put it out there. You're going to be bold in your lightness. I, I love this week on Facebook. A pastor friend was going to preach from the same sermon. He said, why would anybody put a light under a basket? It'll just catch everything on fire. I thought it was, you are a light. Don't catch mess on fire. Don't put out the fire. Go and shine brightly. Jesus is preaching a family sermon. You're the salt. Stay salty. You're the light. Shine brightly. There's one imperative in this whole passage, and it is shine. We're used to imperatives. They're like, change, repent, do this, fix that. Jesus simply says, shine. If they've gotten a little puffy, though, because they are the salt in life, he says, but don't begin to think I've come to do away with the law and the prophets. I've come uh, not to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you very seriously, that as long as the heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. One of the chief critiques about Jesus is he's coming and he's re kind of rebelling against the religious norms of Israel, right? He's letting people eat, uh, pick wheat on the Sabbath. He's letting people eat bread. He's out doing things that violate the law. And so the chief critique and the way that they're going to get him is you are breaking the law. You're doing away with it. This is, this is the type of Messiah you say you are. Jesus says, no, I'm not doing away with the law at all. Actually, we're going to talk about fulfilling the law. There won't be a dot or jittle, a dot of an eye, a cross of a T. Not a bit of it's going to go away until the kingdom of heaven is fulfilled. He says that our righteousness is to be like that of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is a crowd that we normally paint a pretty bad picture of, right? These are the bad people who killed Jesus. That's true. But first and foremost, they're a renewal group in the midst of Israel. They're a group of people who are striving their hardest to bring God's presence back to the temple. They're longing for the days where the promises of Abraham seem to be coming true. And what can we do to make that happen? Maybe, maybe we didn't understand what God meant about keep the Sabbath holy. So let's figure that out. Let's add some ways of understanding holiness on the Sabbath. So let's add 40 examples of it. They go astray, but their, their heart is seeking after 
God's presence in their midst. And Jesus says that our righteousness is to exceed theirs. Holly Mattingly would, uh, at this point, normally tell me, so how do we do that? We don't do that. We don't make ourselves holy. We don't make ourselves perfect. That's how the world tells us to be perfect. To fix ourselves, do everything right, get ourselves straight. We need to be the ones not to do this. We need to be the ones not to do that. This is what we need to do. Paul talks about the same idea. Therefore, my beloved ones, just as you always obey me, not just while I'm present, but even more now while I'm away, carry out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God is the one who enables you both to want and to actually live out his good purposes. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, innocent children of God, surrounded by people who are crooked and corrupt. Among these people, you should shine like the stars of the world because you hold on to the word of life. Paul makes explicit what Jesus doesn't. You can't make yourself perfect. You can't even really want to on your own. It is God who puts that desire in your heart, and it is God who will let you be perfect. I've needed to hear this over and over again for years, so I'm going to say it again. You can't make yourself perfect. You can't even desire it. Absent the grace of God, we're stuck in this never-ending cycle. But through God's grace, he will enable you to desire to be made holy and will enable you to be holy. And it's not just for you, right? This passage doesn't say, and God's going to enable you to do it and make you want to do it so that you can feel good about yourself. Or even so you can be a good Christian. It's so you can know and be a star that shines on the world. That they know you hold to the word of life. Tim Tennant said that uh, we can be justified, we can be saved on a desert island, but that we can't be made holy on a desert island. We can't be sanctified alone. Sanctification is a communal experience where we, uh, j- we journey with community, both of people and the community of God. Tom Oden uh, says this, Since the Christian community remains salt, light, and leaven within the world, it cannot remove itself wholly from the world without removing itself from the arena of apostolic mission. It purifies and cleanses its life only by a constant rhythm of distance and closeness to the world, gathering for worship and scattering for vocation. We come together we do these means of grace. We encounter God in worship and are formed and shaped and sent out as salt and light and leaven. Some of the early church fathers thought that if they went to the desert and kind of became aesthetics and lived by themselves, sin would not be a problem anymore. And they realized that the sin was just as strong when they went and lived in their desert cave as it was out in the world. The idea is that you can't maintain your saltiness if we just keep our our journey of faith in the building that you can't just be righteous you have to go out and be salt and light and then come back and be fed and go out and come back next week's sermon Jesus is going to talk a lot about uh, ways that he reframes the law what it means to be righteous in terms of uh, behavior versus virtue 
Uh, for a crowd that's set on how their behaviors reflect on God, he's going to reframe everything. I think this week's passage is asking us to consider what it means to be a people who would even consider holiness, would consider letting God take hold, create that desire in us, and then do it. Uh, early in Wesley's uh, ministry, he focused a lot on the conversion experience. We need to be saved. We need to uh, be justified, is his language. After he had his Aldersgate moment, his heartwarming experience, there's a shift in the way he talks and writes, and it becomes much more about holiness and sanctification. Sanctification comes after justification. Holiness comes after being saved. Uh, this is an insider sermon that Jesus... It's not a sermon that we go out and we shout on the street corner to people who have not been compelled and captivated by the living God. I think one of the greatest disservices the church does is we go out and we point fingers at the world and say, you're a rotten sinner, you're not holy at all. Instead of saying, let me tell you about a loving God. See, these people have been compelled by Jesus and been captivated by his story. Then they came and they heard the family message. And then these are the same people who get sent out later on as the crowds of 72 and more to go and do the work of the kingdom, right? They carry these uh, little pieces of heaven with them as they go out. They literally go and become salt and light in different parts of the world because they've come and they've been fed. There's still plenty of things I'm not good at and don't care enough about to be good at them. Um, I still sometimes pick up a hobby. I picked up knitting uh, last year because I couldn't do woodworking anymore, and I was so bad at it. Never could deal with that, that stiff stitch I was adding every row. Uh, and didn't care enough. Six of you offered to help me. Uh, Betty, Betty Dedick is horrified that I have not come to her and fixed my knitting yet. I don't care enough about it, right? Um, I picked up mandolin for a little while. I'm never going to be a, a bluegrass star, so I gave up on it. I deeply care about being perfect in love. As your pastor, my prayer is that you do too, that God has, uh, has made you aware of this desire and is helping you in this process. We do this through the means of grace. You're here gathered in worship. Most of my life, uh, Dad uh, used the means of grace as a way to show that you were holy. And they were burdensome. I didn't want to read the Bible. I didn't want to pray. When I come, came to understand them as a means of grace, it changed everything. Instead of a chore to, to be pious enough, instead it was a way for me to meet the living God. It changed everything for me. But the neatest thing has been watching my father change. Uh, he's 76 now. And it's only been in the last about five years that he's begun to understand God's grace. He's moved from this legalistic, be good enough piety to letting God transform him. The way he's engaging the means of grace and teaching others to do that has been incredible. My prayer for many of you is that you're able to set aside the expectations that people have thrust upon you your whole life. I imagine for many of us, we carry some scars from our churches growing up, ways that we have to, to be or to do. You have to do nothing but say, here I am, Lord. It is God who enables you to have the desire and it is God who will do it. God's grace has been moving before you since you ever knew it.
I can honestly say that I expect to be made perfect in this life. My prayer is that uh, if you're not there today, that one day soon you'll, you'll be able to say, I expect to be made perfect in life, this, that I am moving on to perfection. This world needs some people who are made holy to go out and be salt and light, not to preach a message of uh, wrath and judgment, but to preach a message of love and liberation, a message that God loves you. Friends, you don't have to look far to know that our world needs some salt and light. And I believe that you are incredibly well positioned to be the people who go and do that. For in many ways, you've been the ones who've helped me understand what it means to be made holy. I've heard your stories. I've seen your faith lived out. God is sanctifying so many of you today. I'm incredibly thankful for that, and I'm incredibly uh, expectant about what God is going to do as we go forward. Would you pray with me? Merciful God, we... Um, We give over the ways we've sought to be perfect. We lay down the expectations that people in our life and institutions in our life have put upon us. Lord, we ask you to heal those scars on our hearts from where we've sought to be perfect in ways that are harmful. Create in us the desire to be made holy and help us do it. Fill us with your spirit and send us forth to be the salt and light in the world. And then draw us back through the power of your spirit to be fed once more. To continue in this cycle of uh, coming and going, drawing near and going out. Lord, pour out your spirit in abundance on each person here. Grow them in holiness that they might answer, yes, I am moving on to perfection. It's so in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen and amen.